So Acts chapter 9, we have this uh, story of Saul, Saul's conversion. We know Saul better as Paul. His name is changed along the way. More likely, uh, he's a man that goes by two, two names. In ancient times, uh, uh, people often had two different names. And Saul is a Hebrew name, and we know him better as Paul. That's probably his, his Greek name or the name he goes by in the Greek world. Uh, Saul's name is not changed by Jesus at his conversion. Uh, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, just uh, in, uh, I believe in Acts chapter 13 says uh, Saul, who was also called Paul, did these things. And then uh, he just calls him Paul from then on. So Saul's a guy with two names. I'll be referring to him primarily as Saul this morning because the text does. But know that this is the same man, Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. And here we have a conversion story in Acts chapter 9. Now, there are lots of different types of conversions, even different ways that we use that word conversion. Like I think of, you know, back in the 80s, maybe uh, early 90s, conversion vans were cool things. But a conversion van was just like a, a regular van that people turned into something cooler on the inside. It's a van you could take camping. Or convertible cars. But a convertible car doesn't really convert into anything else. Just the top comes off. It's the same car that it was before. Now there's just no roof. Many of you this time of year are thinking about converting uh, your swamp cooler to an air conditioning unit conversion that I am glad that happened at our house before we purchased it. Uh, you may even think, and more rightly so, of converting from one faith to another. Conversion, in the biblical sense, is not just a, a slight change in the appearance of things, but conversion in the biblical sense, not like a conversion van or a convertible car. Conversion in the biblical sense is, is a person becoming someone else entirely. It's converting from someone who is anti-Christ to following Jesus. And that is the kind of conversion that we see in Saul. As we now look at God's Word, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way being an early uh, uh, a word for the, for the Christian church, anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen, a vision, uh, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem uh, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, those are the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Saul's conversion. Saul the terrorist in Acts chapter 9, terrorist of the church, becomes one of her, after a meeting with Jesus, one of her greatest evangelists, greatest supporters, greatest preachers and missionaries. This is a a crucial passage in the course of Acts that introduces us to uh, how uh, Saul came to be Paul, how uh, this apostle came to have such prominence in the life of the early church. There's a lot that we could look at in this text today. Very quickly, I want to look at three things. I want to look at the manner of Saul's conversion. I want to look at the mission of Saul the converted. And I want us to look at the multiplication of the church. Let us first, in verses 1 through 19, look at the manner of Saul's conversion. The way in which he was changed from terrorist to evangelist. First of all, we find in verses 1 through 3 that Saul's conversion is unexpected. You'll notice from verses 1 and 2 that Saul's conversion happens in the context of his continued threatening and imprisoning of Christians. And with plans to take his persecution further outside of Jerusalem into the ancient city of Damascus that lies some, uh, uh, some space uh, north of Jerusalem. Now Saul's plan, Saul's intention, are to go to Damascus, this ancient city, to round up even more followers of the way, as it says there in, verse, in verses 1 through 3. Uh, the way being the church as it was first called, when as we read in verse 3, Paul, or Saul, excuse me, is suddenly, the text says, and unexpectedly arrested by Jesus on the road. Saul's conversion and the events leading up to it are not expected by him, nor by anybody else. They come upon him without warning. His conversion is unexpected. It is also dramatic. Verses 4 through 9 play out the drama for us of this situation. The whole encounter between the risen Jesus and Saul on this road to Damascus is quite dramatic, even miraculous, we would say. This event carries with it much of the drama, much of the intrigue uh, that so many other miraculous events in the course of Acts carry with them. 
Jesus certainly could have come to Saul any of a number of mundane and ordinary ways. Jesus doesn't have to come to Saul this way. But it would seem that Saul's own spiteful opposition to the believers, to uh, followers of the way, to Christians, necessitated this kind of dramatic arresting experience to prove to him his error and the truth that Jesus is the Christ. The dramatic nature of this event is further highlighted in the fact that Jesus himself appears to Saul on the road. Not an angel, not one of the apostles, but Jesus himself asking Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here's a beautiful uh, truth, church, that Jesus and his followers are so intimately united by the faith that they have placed in him as Lord that to persecute the church, to threaten the church, to speak ill of or to abuse followers of Jesus is to do the very same thing to Christ himself. So close is the union between Jesus and his followers. It's a wonderful truth, but friends, there's also a warning to us here to take great care with how we treat the church of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that she is his bride. And brother, you better believe he will protect her. Paul's conversion is unexpected. It's very dramatic. Jesus himself appearing to Saul on the road. We see also, though, in verses 5 and in 17 through 18, that Saul's conversion is sincere. It's genuine. It's authentic. Saul's subsequent submission to Jesus as Lord is not like the sort of faux or pseudo-conversion that we see of Simon the sorcerer back in Acts chapter 8. No, Saul's conversion is genuine. In verse 5, Saul says to Jesus, Lord, he calls Jesus, Lord, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That word Lord is a word that generically means master, but is, in the most biblical sense, a title only fit for the divine, only fit for God himself. And so Saul uses that of Jesus who appears to him on the road. Saul's affirmation that the one who is appearing to him on the road is the Lord, is God the Son, combined with his receiving of the Holy Spirit and his following in baptism in verses 17 and 18 with Ananias, demonstrates to us that Saul's conversion from hater of Christ to lover of the Lord is absolutely sincere. Saul's conversion from terrorist to evangelist is unexpected. It is dramatic. It is sincere. But also we see in verses 10 through 19, it is affirmed by others. Submission to Jesus as Lord is never intended to be a private event, Christian. Nor is, a, nor is it to be a private, ongoing religious experience. Just me and Jesus and no one else. Now, God has always intended that our faith be practiced in commitment to other believers who can affirm the sincerity of our belief. Commitment to other believers who can, who can affirm that we are walking consistently with Jesus. So then it's no wonder that almost immediately the Lord Jesus speaks to one of his disciples, a follower of Christ, in that city of Damascus, a man named Ananias, speaking to him in a vision, saying, go across the city to meet this man named Saul, who has met the Lord and who will spend the remainder of his life preaching the gospel and suffering for the name of Jesus. Ananias, regular run-of-the-mill disciple of Jesus, not the same Ananias from Acts chapter 5. That Ananias died. This is a different Ananias. This man is hesitant at first. Hesitant to fulfill or to be obedient to the call that Jesus has placed upon him. He knows who Saul is. Saul has a reputation that literally precedes him. 
He's got letters that have been sent from the high priest to the synagogues in Damascus saying, if this man Saul finds any followers of the way, any followers of this Jesus as Messiah, uh, they are to be arrested and taken back to Jerusalem for trial. Ananias says to the Lord, I know who this guy is. Are you sure you want me to go talk to him? Ananias, hesitant at first because of the danger that Saul previously posed, fairly quickly obeys the Lord without much question. He says, Lord... You know who this guy is. And the Lord says, yep, go anyway. And Ananias becomes a key player in the affirmation of Saul's change of heart, his change of life, his total repentance. He goes to meet with this newly, uh, with this man who has met with Jesus on the road to affirm who it is that he saw, to to affirm the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, to lay hands on him, that, that Saul might receive the Holy Spirit, to baptize this brother as a fellow follower of Jesus. Saul's conversion is affirmed by others. Now, friend, I would encourage you that if you're a member of this church, that you see the humble obedience and commitment of Ananias to building up his new brother in Christ as an inseparable aspect of your membership to this church family. Each one of us have a call similar to Ananias. Affirm one another. Attest to the faith that you see in the lives of others. Encourage one another. Pray with one another. Help one another as you follow Jesus. There are other believers in this uh, body of Christ, this family of faith, brothers and sisters, who need your prayer, who need your encouragement, who need the conviction of sin in their life that you can stand to bring to them and to point out. And there are others in this church whose prayer and encouragement and conviction you need in your own life. In this way, it's quite nearly impossible to consider too strongly or, or to overestimate the importance of this commitment to other believers in the local church. The manner of Saul's conviction or conversion is unexpected. It is dramatic. It's affirmed by others. And what we find in all of this is we uh, even seek to apply some of this text to our own life, to live in light of it, is to just understand this truth that, friends, all true conversions, all true conversions to Christ uh, share in common, have in common submission to Christ as Lord. That, that, that's the mark of a true conversion. Submission to Christ as Lord. Now, the dramatic or mundane nature of the events surrounding a particular or an individual's conversion have no bearing upon the truth of the conversion. If that converted person's faith is in Christ as Lord, if their submission to Jesus is is submission to His Lordship. Now, to make the point, we have no further to go than to Scripture itself. Of the thousands of conversions to Christ that are numbered in the course of Acts, only a relative few, a relative fraction of them are attended with miracles and dramatic events and Damascus Road type conversions that we see here. Most of them are contained in the simple and rational act of coming to the quiet but genuine conviction that the risen Jesus is Lord. So friend, if you came to know Christ when you were a child, six, eight, nine years old, and your, your submission to Jesus as Lord at six, eight, nine years old was sincere you are no less saved than the brother or sister who took 20, 30, 40 years and a whole lot of sinning to realize their need for Christ, okay? I'd also point us to note that the nature of biblical salvation is not that you come to Christ as Lord to become a better version of yourself. You don't come to Christ as Lord. You're not converted and just take the top down. You're the same form, just with a slightly different appearance. Friends, the gospel is not believe in Jesus and be a better person. 
Saul's salvation, his conversion, is not in being less murdery, okay? It's in full repentance, full turning from sin, full submission to the sovereign reign of Christ in his life. And that's the kind of conversion that we see here in Acts chapter 9. There's a second application here for us, though, too. The first is just to know this, that all true conversions share submission to Christ as Lord. So, friend, if, if, you've, if you've not submitted your life to Jesus as Lord, you've not been converted, you've not been saved. That is an indispensable mark of salvation. But there's a second application for us here, and that is this, that knowing that God can take a terrorist like Saul and turn him into an evangelist chief preacher and, and, and one of the, the, the most significant characters in Christian history leads us to keep hope for, for, salvation, for the salvation of those that we know and that we love who are very far from God. Yeah. If there's hope for Saul, there, there's hope yet for those in our lives who are still far from God. So keep praying for the lost people that you know. Keep praying for your lost friends and family members, those who do not know Christ, will not follow him. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for opportunity to share the gospel with them. Keep stepping out in boldness and in conviction to point them to the way of salvation, which is by trusting in Jesus and turning from their sins. Keep hope for salvation of those who you love who are far from God. We see the manner of Saul's conversion. Let us see then uh, the mission of the converted. In verses 19 through 30, very quickly, Saul enters, uh, begins working on mission for the Lord. We see in the, at the end of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, that the mission of the converted Saul is embraced immediately. We find in this verse that Paul spent quite a bit of time in uh, uh, the end of verse 19, quite a bit of time with the other disciples in Damascus, growing in, uh, growing in his understanding of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. The end of uh, verse 19 says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. There we can assume that he was being nurtured in his newfound faith, discipled uh, as a follower of Jesus. But do not miss also that as verse 20 says, Saul immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Immediately Saul takes on the mission of the other believers. Knowing that they have been called to make disciples, Saul also goes and does the same. Immediately he proclaims Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God among the Jewish population in the synagogues of Damascus. Saul himself says in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, that he was an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, an expert in the law, what we, under, what we know as the Old Testament today. Saul was a rabbi, and as a rabbi, he had the special privilege of being able to enter any synagogue and immediately receive an audience with the Jews that were there as he taught Jesus from the Scriptures. He immediately leverages the influence that he has in the synagogues for the sake of Christ. Now, this mission to make more disciples... Saul immediately and enthusiastically embraces here in Acts chapter 9. We find that it is a mission that will drive him the rest of his life, particularly as we read in his letters to the church at Rome and to Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi. A mission that will drive him throughout the rest of the course of Acts. And the reason that it drives him so is not because it is primarily his mission, but because it is Christ's mission. It's the mission of his Lord. In verses 20 and 22, 28 and 29, we, we see some of these things played out. We find from, verse, from these verses, 20, 22, 28 and 29, that the very content and focus of Saul's mission is Jesus himself. This man converted from terrorist to evangelist is on mission with Jesus. The content of the, Jesus, uh, of the mission is Christ as Lord and proving from the very word of God that Jesus is the Christ. Did you see that in the text? 
and in proving that Jesus is the Christ, we find men and women being saved as they believe the good news of God's Messiah. That is what takes place throughout the entire course of this early history of the church we call Acts. Interestingly enough, not only is Jesus the content of Saul's mission, but Jesus is even the one who is driving the mission. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' mission, he declares himself, is to seek and to save the lost. That is the very mission of Christ. Even further in John's gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, we read Jesus praying before his own arrest and crucifixion. This is what he prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Jesus continues, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, friends, revealing to sinners the way of salvation that comes only through Jesus was Jesus' mission long before it was ever Saul's mission. The mission of the converted is Christ's mission, but certainly it is also the mission of every believer. It is a mission inherited. The Lord Jesus, as he's raised from the dead, before he ascends again into heaven, gave this instruction to his followers, his disciples, to continue this mission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You know these verses. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And know that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a a, a verse that we continue to go back to week after week in our series in Acts because this is the command that Jesus has given that's being fulfilled in the course of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The mission of Jesus is the mission of every believer. Saul knows this and Saul is practicing this. Saul, as well as any believer can, understands so clearly that to follow Jesus as Lord is to take on Jesus' mission as his own as well. If Jesus is king, if Jesus is master, then whatever he does, I do. Wherever he leads, I follow. Whatever he commands, I obey. It's not just as a task to complete or a box to tick in the life of Saul or in the life of any believer, but it is part of participating in God's divine rescue mission to save sinners. It's a commission that he's given to us to participate in as the gospel goes out into the world through us and God saves people through the message of the gospel that we get to preach, not have to preach, get to preach. The mission of the converted is embraced immediately by Saul. It's the mission of Christ, and likewise, it's the mission of every believer. But we also see in the rest of uh, Acts chapter 9, the passage we read this morning, that this mission endures rejection. This mission endures persecution. And because the mission of the believer is the Lord's mission, it should not come as a surprise that Jesus' followers who carry out his mission get treated a whole lot like Jesus. Ananias is told by Jesus in that vision that he must go to Saul so that the Lord can show Saul how much he must suffer for the name of Jesus. Indeed, Saul does suffer for the message of Christ almost immediately in his life and certainly throughout the course of the rest of his uh, ministry as a missionary. 
Now, interestingly enough, between verses 22 and 23 of our text today, Saul leaves Damascus to go eastward into Arabia. He tells us that he does this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, and that he's gone from Damascus for three years. Luke doesn't highlight this in Acts, but Paul himself writes about it in Galatians. And when he returns after three years to Damascus and continues preaching the gospel of Jesus, where we pick back up in verse 23, he makes quick enemies of those of influence in the city who immediately seek to kill him. Saul starts preaching the gospel of Jesus, and all of a sudden, he's got himself a whole bunch of enemies. And with the help of some friends, Saul is able to escape the city. He uh, escapes through a hole in the wall, and he returns to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there, with Peter and John and the rest of the twelve. Now, there in the city of Jerusalem, where he began his persecution, you'll remember, Saul is now understandably kept at arm's distance by the believers, much like Ananias. Dude, your reputation precedes you. Are you sure that we should, we're not so sure that we should let you in. But there in the city, he's he, being understandably kept at arm's distance by the believers. We find after a period of time, our good old friend Barnabas from Acts chapter 4 and 5, the son of encouragement, coming alongside Saul to vouch for him with the apostle Peter. He says, no, 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 no. This guy really saw Jesus on the road. This guy really has stopped persecuting the church. He really has started preaching the gospel of Jesus. I vouch for him, right? Take him on my reputation. And once Saul has the trust and the fellowship of the other believers in Jerusalem, he immediately goes about doing what he did in Damascus, not just making enemies, but proving that Jesus is the Christ. He begins arguing with those Greek-speaking Jewish leaders, the Hellenists, as the text tells us, to the point where they want to kill him too. So he's got death threats in Damascus. Now he's got death threats in Jerusalem. For the good of Saul's own well-being, the apostles send him back to his hometown of Tarsus in Cilicia, where he will remain for 10 years in relative silence before Barnabas goes to find him again, take him to Antioch, as we'll see in Acts chapter 13, and from there uh, be sent on mission from the Holy Spirit and from the church there at Antioch. The mission of the converted, converted Saul, is embraced immediately. It's Christ's mission. It's the mission of every believer because it is Christ's mission. But friends, this mission also endures rejection and persecution. doesn't necessarily seek it out, but when it comes, it endures it and presses on. And so I ask you this question. Friend, is Christ your Lord? Do you claim Christ as King? Do you, do you say, are you saying that you have repented of sins that you might follow Jesus? Is Christ your Lord? If so, then as His loving and loyal child and follower, you need to join the mission of Christ to make disciples of all nations. You need to join the mission of the converted. Now, you know that it's the mission of this church, of First Baptist West Albuquerque. It says it on the, we have it printed on the front of our worship guide every week, that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we live for. This is what we die for. This is what we've been saved for. This is our mission. Saul's mission is our mission. It was Christ's mission that he has given to his followers. The vision of our church, the, the way in which we seek to, to work out that mission of making disciples is that we would take the gospel to people and, and invite them into a saving relationship with Jesus, that they might turn from their sin, trust Christ even as we have, that they might know God through Christ. 
And that knowing God through Christ, they might then, as we come alongside, help them to grow in maturity as believers, spending much time with them. The same way that Saul spent many days with the disciples in Damascus, we spend many days with believers, helping them to grow in their faith, that they might, like Saul and all other believers, uh, be driven, be, be moved, be pressed, have a fire set in their hearts to go to the nations, to go to their neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be multiplying, uh, duplicating, replicating disciples in the world. That's the mission and the vision of this church. And friends, if that doesn't get your heart beating a little bit faster, you, you might need to call the doctor this morning. We've seen the manner of Saul's conversion. We've seen the, the mission of the converted Saul. But let us see in verse 31, short verse, the importance, uh, something we don't want to miss, the multiplication of the church. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This final verse of our text today uh, might be quite easy for us to gloss over, so easy to gloss over that we might be tempted to miss the importance of it. It's just kind of a summary verse at the end of a a long series of uh, dramatic events in the life of Saul and in his conversion. This summary verse, like many that Luke uses throughout the course of Acts, communicates to us the results of Saul's conversion. That first word, so, thus, therefore, in this way, as a result of all that happened in Saul's life, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Very plainly, the chief result of Saul's conversion is not so much that he goes from terrorist to evangelist, although that is important, but the chief result of Saul's conversion is the multiplication of the church, the growth in both spiritual strength and number of new disciples, new believers in Jesus. Notice from verse 31 that the multiplication of the church happens first and foremost as a result of conversions, like Saul's, people going from God-haters, anti-Christ-type people, to lovers of Jesus and obedient followers of him. We've already seen several times in the course of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and 4, 5, 6, here in Acts chapter 9, we'll see it again in 11 and 12 and 13, 16 and 17, 18 and 19, that the church grows numerically as new people believe the gospel and submit their lives to Jesus as Lord. Know this, Christian, that churches in the New Testament do not grow as Christians move from one church to another. Now, there's a tendency in the culture in which we live today to want to structure our, or desire, a, a, maybe a longing to structure our church and the programs of our church to draw in more churched people, people who already know Christ. And that's not a bad thing, but very often when they come, they're coming from other uh, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches in the same city. All we're doing is swapping sheep, Okay? So, so like one year, our, our church in attendance and maybe in membership might be really, really big, but all the others, or maybe several others are quite small, or maybe our church membership and, and attendance seems low and other churches is big, but the total number of believers in the city of Albuquerque is not growing. In fact, it may be shrinking because all we're doing is swapping believers. The church doesn't grow just because Christians move from one church to another. The church grows when people who were lost are now found. When those who are blind uh, by their sin and in their sin have been made to see by faith and trust in Jesus as Lord. Churches grow when people are saved, when people are converted. 
It happens as faithful Christians like Saul and Philip and the apostles and thousands of unnamed men and women give compassionate and compelling witness to the good news of Jesus Christ and call lost people to repentance from sin and submission to the Lord Jesus. The multiplication of the church happens as a result of conversions like Saul's in a dramatic sense and also like the many thousands that are not recorded that happen in a relatively mundane way. But notice this too from the end of verse 31. The multiplication of the church is also a result of faithful living. It's a result of faithful living. We read Luke says there that they were walking in the that walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. That word walking is a commonplace way of speaking about the character of a person's life. We walk with Christ. Our lives are lived out with Christ. These are the kinds of lives that the people uh, in the, the church, as it's scattered around the area of Judea and Samaria, this kind of lives, these are the kinds of lives that they are living. And their lives are marked by two things that Luke shows us. First of all, the fear of the Lord. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, in one sense, is a real trepidation when confronted with the judgment that he meets out against sin. Fear of the Lord is a right understanding of His justice and His wrath against sin and disobedience. But at the same time, that fear of God's judgment, rightly applied, leads to repentance from sins. When we know what we deserve from the Lord and recognize what we deserve from the Lord, our heart's desire ought to be to turn from it, that we might not receive the the wrath, the judgment that God rightly sends to us. Fear of the Lord for the Christian is not just fear of God's judgment, But it is also, it is more so, an informed sense of awe and wonder and worship of the one true God who justly punishes sin in the crucified Jesus, his own son, and who offers new life through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord. To know what is due your sin, to see that God has paid for that in Christ, and to turn from your sins and to trust Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, giving your whole life in in submission to him. That's what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to place the will and the purposes of God far above one's own. It is to love God himself more than anything else on earth. The fear of the Lord is consistently in the course of Scripture contrasted with the fear of man, which is to have a reverence or a fear of other human beings. Fear of man is most often manifested in a concern for our own reputation, a concern for our own safety and comfort and ease of life. All of these things are endangered when persons come to faith in Jesus. Your comfort, your reputation, your safety are endangered when you submit to Jesus as Lord. Because to follow Jesus is often to make oneself an enemy of mankind. And we see this constantly in Scripture as well. But this is not the picture of the ancient church, and it must not be the picture of the contemporary church. The Christian who fears his boss, the Christian who fears his professor or his friends, who cares more about what they think about him than about his own relationship with Christ will never be a faithful or effective witness for Jesus and the kingdom that he rules over. Saul, later known, better known as Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians 1, verse 10, writes this. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Is my life marked by the fear of man or by the fear of God? He says, Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not, could not, be a servant of Christ. The fear of the Lord contrasts and ought to overwhelm the fear of man in our lives. And so, Christian, if your life is marked by the fear of what other people think about you or concerned for what other people think about you or how they feel about you, 
You are fearing man more than you are fearing the Lord. And you cannot be a consistent, faithful witness to the gospel if you care more about what people think about you than about your relationship with God and what you think of Him. The church is walking in the fear of the Lord. And we see also at the end of verse 31 that they're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a really cool concept for us in Scripture on display here. And I normally don't try to, uh, I try not to talk too much about Greek terms and Greek words. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. But there's a really cool thing going on here in Greek that I think is helpful for us. And, uh, and it's just really cool. If nothing else, you could just say, I learned a cool thing in church today. The word that is translated comfort or encouragement here in verse 31 is, is the same, uh, is the Greek word paraklesis. Okay, paraklesis. The disciples are walking in the paraklesis, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But many of you, your minds are already going there. You'll recall that in John's Gospel, chapter 15, where Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, there he does not refer to the Holy Spirit specifically as Holy Spirit, but rather as the helper, as the comforter, as the encourager. Many of you know that the Greek word for helper, for comforter, for encourager is parakletos or paraclete. So get this. Luke is saying that the early Christians are multiplying as they walk in the fear of the Lord and in the paraclesis of the paraclete, the comfort of the comforter, the encouragement of the encourager. That's cool. Friends, this is precisely what it means to live a spirit-filled life. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you walk in your life following Christ. That submitting to Christ as Lord and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, we fear the Lord moment by moment, reverencing Him, keeping Him in, in a place of proper awe and wonder and, and glorifying Him moment by moment. And in each moment, we find our continued encouragement for following Christ our continued empowerment for mission, our continued boldness for speaking the gospel in the presence of the very Spirit of God living in us. We walk in the comfort of the Comforter. We walk, we live in the encouragement of the Encourager, God's own Spirit dwelling in us as a down payment of our salvation, promise that He will raise us from the dead, lives in us each day to encourage, to comfort us, to give us, to empower us with all that we need to fulfill the mission of Christ. So church, you want to grow? You want to multiply? You want verse 31? Church multiplying to be true of First Baptist West Albuquerque? Here's what you do. You don't follow Rick Warren's or Ed Stetzer's or Bill Hybel's church, church growth model. You follow God's church growth model. I'm committed to following God's church growth model. And you'll notice in verse 31 that the way that God grows churches... It's not through having the fanciest programs on the block. It's not, through having the, not, not by having the best lights in the worship center. It's not by having, you know, fog machines and laser beams. And, 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 you know, free gifts for everyone as they walk in the door. This is the Lord's church growth model. Fear the Lord. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Make disciples. All of those things, church, are things that you have to do actively. You must fear the Lord. You must honor Him as holy in your life. You must submit your life to Christ as Lord. You must be led by the Holy Spirit. You must be comforted by the Comforter, encouraged by the Encourager, empowered by the Empowerer. You must make disciples. 
There's a tendency in churches to want to professionalize ministry so that the pastors do all of the evangelizing. The pra- the, you know, I'll invite my friend to church so that they can hear the gospel, and then the pastor will lead them to Jesus. No, friends. I mean, yes, sometimes, but mostly, mostly, that command to make disciples has been given to you. It's been given to you. You make disciples. Jesus doesn't say in Matthew 28, bring them to the church and let the pastor do all the work. He says, you go, you make disciples, you teach them, you lead them to me, you point them to salvation through repentance and faith. Friends, do we want to, if we really want to see our church grow in depth, certainly in our, our knowledge of Christ, our, our, our maturity uh, in his character, our, our walk with him, we will do these things. We will fear the Lord. We will be led by the Holy Spirit. We'll endeavor to make disciples. If we want to see our church grow numerically, we will do so by seeking numerical growth through conversions and not through sheep swapping. There's plenty of room for lost people in here each and every Sunday. Lost people who don't yet know Christ, who don't yet know the love of a church family, Lost people who don't yet know the hope of the resurrection that comes in placing faith in Jesus. They're out there. God has deployed us to take this message, this good news to them. Just like Saul, we need to embrace immediately the mission of Christ. I pray that God in his grace would enable us at First Baptist West Albuquerque to do just that. Let's pray. Awesome, powerful, mighty God, you who uh, turned the hardened hearts of of those who have long hated you, you who who turned terrorists into evangelists, you who took Saul, persecutor of the church, and turned his heart to be perhaps one of the greatest preachers of the gospel that this world has ever known. God, you have done the exact same thing in the hearts of everyone who has trusted in Jesus. Our conversion, although externally not as dramatic, internally and spiritually is just as dramatic as Saul's. We went from being children of wrath to children of the living God. We went from being infinitely far from you, from the sin that our hearts continually continually manufacture, to being right with you, to being justified with you. And God, we praise you for the wonderful, miraculous work that you do in the heart of every person who trusts Jesus whether it's attended with blinding flashes of light or simple prayer of contrition, confession, and submission to Jesus as Lord. God, we we celebrate that miracle of salvation every time it happens. And we thank you, God, that you have given to us your Holy Spirit, same as you did Saul and the apostles and the thousands of unnamed brothers and sisters in the course of Acts. You've given us the same spirit, the same power, comfort, encouragement to fulfill the mission that Christ has given to us. Now, God, all that remains is whether we'll be faithful, whether we'll be obedient to do what we know that you have called us to do, to do what we know that you have saved us to do. Help us in that, Lord. Help us to do it. We'll give you all the glory for it because you're the only one who who deserves any of the honor, any of the praise for any success, for any growth there is as people leave their lives of sin to trust in Jesus. God, we're preparing our hearts even now to respond to your word in a moment. In a moment, we'll sing a song of of response. And for some of us, our response to your word will simply be in in singing this song uh, in a heartfelt way. God, is our prayer to you, our response to you this morning. But God, there are others who who need to respond uh, more tangibly, more publicly than that. There are some who need to respond to your word today 
with the knowledge that they, they know they need to be saved by placing faith in Jesus. They know their lives are moving the opposite direction of following Christ. And God, you by your spirit and through your word, you've shown them the truth of that this morning. And you're calling them even now to turn from sin, to trust in Christ, to allow him to come and to begin to purify their lives, to, to fix the things that they have made wrong by their own sin. God, I pray for those who are struggling with this or working through this this morning, that you would affirm for them that they don't have to get themselves cleaned up to come to Christ. They don't have to make sure that they're perfect before they come to Jesus, but rather that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That as we come to him uh, and your spirit enters us and we walk in union with Christ, that he begins to purify us. He'll show us the right way. He'll give us the right motives to do what is good and godly. God, I pray you'd give boldness and courage to those who need to respond with faith in Jesus for the first time today. Give all of us, God, faithfulness and obedience to you in response to your word. Pray that we would, like the church in Acts, multiply because we're walking in, in the fear of you, awe and reverence of who you are, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, have your way in us now. Move us to respond appropriately. Help us to do it obediently. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.